Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. This recording starts after the session has already begun. And overall, we um, have always, as a magazine, considered Indian country as a part of the West, but just didn't necessarily do it uh, in a really um, nuanced, thoughtful way. Um, and then I got there five years ago, and um, within the first couple of years of being there, then Standing Rock kicked off. And um, Standing Rock caught us very flat-footed as a magazine. Uh, we were really unprepared for what that really was and its significance uh, in terms of um, a story where we keep it in the ground, people were sort of um, not... We're, we're, we're finding their way to this broader movement of water protectors um, and kind of there was like a kind of a huge mingling there and I sent like three people eventually we were late but then we got on top of it and I uh, sent some people and I commissioned some people um, native and non-native and like literally no one could actually tell me what was happening the reporters couldn't do it the editors couldn't quite figure it out no one could wrap their head around Standing Rock in the right way it was like it was a huge mess, and then a blizzard happened, and it just got like messier, and like we had to pull like one person out, and um, and I just kind of realized at that moment that we really, for a magazine that purports to cover this region, um, don't have a handle on uh, Indian country, or didn't. Yeah. So. Um, I was. Uh, we're lucky to be have a. Uh, we're a nonprofit. We have a board of directors that is. 20 members strong. <laughs> so there are 20, 20 opinions flying around at any given time on the board of directors. Um, but one of the um, things that they did right a number of years ago was understand that High Country News should cover a lot of different communities of the West. And to make that change, the board of directors needed to make that change itself. And so the board itself has recruited a lot of um, different folks from different communities. Uh, and one of the members of our board was then the Native American Journalist Association president, Brian Pollard. So we had a board member who was a resource. And so I went to him. Well, at first I went to my, my boss and said, hey, I think we need to do better here. Um, and how do we do that? Well, let's talk to our board member and let's, let's kind of see. And originally the idea was, and I think this would have been, would have been the original sin and, and I'm glad we didn't do it. And I think it's a mistake that most people make, which is, Hey, let's get somebody part-time to come in here as a contributing editor to kind of like help us with a network and bring that in. And as soon as I brought that up with our board member, he was like, that's not going to work. You're not going to get, um, you're not going to recruit like the high-powered talent that you need to do this if you don't make a permanent position. And so I had to make a decision with my budget and my resources to commit to that. Yeah. So I rearranged my budget, and I um, made a permanent position, and then I built out of that a, a desk. Yeah. And, I, and the, from the success of that desk, actually built th three desks at High Country News because it was working so well. Um, and so that's building a permanent position, just committing to it and committing the resources to it and understanding that um, in some ways um, re readership would follow and journalism would follow, but, but kind of committing to getting a, a, a talented editor who could really 
point out, just be in the room on every big decision that we made and, and, and making um, that desk editor a senior decision maker on the editorial staff so that, um, and his name is Tristan Otto, and he's now the president of the Native American Journal Association. So um, Tristan is a, a part of the decision-making process on a lot of that we do, and that has allowed us to basically put our resources into stories that matter and stay away from the ones that are old, tired, don't matter, and it allows us to center Native voices for an Indigenous audience and expect our readership, who is non-Native, to catch up. So, you know, we're kind of a Google it model. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's something that we had actually touched on earlier was that the way that you guys have approached that was that by bringing in that the, the indigenous editors and then also the, the staff writers and um, interns and fellows. What you're doing is establishing enough connective tissue in your coverage to when you get to the big kind of meteor pieces your readership doesn't have to, doesn't need the two or three paragraphs of history of setup. Like they already know it and they can kind of just enjoy the story. Uh, or maybe not, if it's not an enjoyable story, they can, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, Anna, you were a part of that initial, um, like you were kind of there from the beginning. And one thing that you touched on in that in the morning's panel that I want to circle back to was you referenced a lot how important it was to have an indigenous editor looking over your work as a reporter, looking over your work as a writer. Um, and can you maybe just speak to that in terms of what your what your past experience was versus like why that's so important um, working on the desk now? Yeah, so I feel like that gets a, um, again, back to the conversation this morning about framing. Yes. Um, I think that when you, and I'm experiencing this right now actually with the story that I'm working on, <laughs> that, um, you know, inherently editors just have different brains and they conceive of stories differently mm -hmm. the same way that that's true for writers. Writers conceive of stories differently depending on their background, depending on their education, depending on how they see the world. Um, and so when you're covering uh, a story that's indigenous affairs, like there's so many there's a lot of big picture stuff, but then there's also like down to word choice, like what I was saying earlier about um, pressing those ideas of nationhood and citizenship. Um, and those are things that, I mean, you know, non-native non editors just, I mean, it's, it's something that can be learned for sure. Like it's not like a magical art, but it's like it, there needs to be like consistent desire to learn those things. Um, and it's just a big learning curve. <laughs> yeah. So. And in, in the process of going through that learning curve, I mean, when you're looking at, so initially it was just the desk, who was the initial makeup of it, the HCN, um, tri what was in the tribal affairs desk in 2017? So it was Tristan, um, has always been the associate editor. For a while, he was on a Neiman Fellowship, so he wasn't quite right, as hands-on right. as he has been for the last year and a half. But mm -hmm. So it's always been Tristan Atone as associate editor, and then myself as assistant editor. And then we have Graham Lee Brewer, who is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, as a contributing editor. And then our interns and fellows cycle in and out. Right. So. And that, to point out what might seem obvious um, for y'all that have now been in that system for a little bit. I mean, these are people that are all coming from different tribal nations with different experiences. And you kind of touched on that, like when you're speaking about how 
you, every, I mean, indigenous or not, every editor comes in with their own history, with their own way of doing things. Um, but can you maybe just speak to the importance of having that at a reporter level and not just at the editor level, of having that diversity in tribal nations amongst your staff as well? Uh, and Brian, you can also uh, field that it, um, after Anna has, yeah? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like a good example that yeah. would like illustrate. So like for example, like Graham has done a number of stories on the Cherokee Nation and he's a Cherokee Nation citizen. Right. So like him doing a story would be on that would be different than me or Kaylin or something like mm -hmm. that because like he's he's I mean, like what we were saying before, like um, it's not just about indigenous people, it's also for and by. And so like that's, I feel like a really good example. Yeah. And so the things that like me and Kaylin might see in an election story about the Cherokee Nation, Graham might see totally differently right. and hear different things from his community. Um, yeah. Does that kind of get to your question? Yeah, well, I mean, just kind of the point being that, you know, there are, what, 573, 573 yeah. tribal nations, that's 573 Government says 573 um, histories, 573 experience, like cultural experiences and nuance that is, I mean, like you said, it's impossible unless, I'd like to think that one day there will be a desk with 573 <laughs> reporters and editors on it from all of them. But it, I mean, it's, it gets to this larger point of how the need for diversity among um, not just indigenous um, native tribes, but also like, socioeconomic background about getting people that aren't just kind of coming from, uh, you know, whatever private schools or whatever, you know, like they're having that kind of difference in experience. And that seems to be something that High Country News, it reflects in their coverage a lot. Um, and so, Brian, can I just kind of, I want to talk about a little bit about the hiring process uh, as it relates for y'all. And I'm not sure if that's something that Tristan handles more for that desk or if something that you have conversations um, with him about. But I'm curious about when you guys were kind of crafting this idea of this desk after he had been named the associate editor of it, what were the conversations like around about recruitment? How do you seek out indigenous staff writers to fit the, the mission um, of your specific outlet? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a really good question because I think what you can encounter is a chicken and egg problem. So you're not really going to attract a lot of talented reporters until you're really kind of producing stories where talented reporters want to be a part of that coverage. And so in the, in the beginning, it was really just being just fiercely committed to centering naval voices, finding uh, reporters and writers who were um, available, because a lot of talented reporters and writers across the um, industry are overtasked, over, um, over asked. And so who can you, who can you find to do what we're trying, trying to do? And so having an, an indigenous editor who was also a member of the, uh, you know, an officer of the Native American Journalists Association was very helpful there because there's a network. So what you're really trying to do is um, tap, tap a network that you're, is un, un, untapped uh, prior to that desk. Right. And so for our, our model is uh, to have uh, a budget for freelancers and then to have uh, frequent contributors either as editors or writers. Uh, and then to also yeah, I have a, a desk editor and, a, and an assistant desk editor 
Um, so I think that the conversations were really about really just getting shots on goal, getting out there, getting stories. And I think um, very quickly, well, we did we did enough stories and we did them well enough that we were awarded, um, I don't know, golds and silvers, or what you know, yeah. awards for the Native American. <laughs> Much gold was thrown upon us, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we were. Uh, in garlands. Anyway, so um, we won some awards through the Native American Journalists Association, which I think also helps um, uh, reporters within that community say, oh, hey, you know, that's a place where I can do good work uh, for and from my community. And so I I think um, strategically it was more um, really just about getting out there, getting writers, getting ideas that are past the stereotypical, and I assume you covered the bingo board, so bu- building out like sort of no-nos and, and red lights um, and having sort of um, the will to overcome some of the discomfort from other staff members who are non-native for covering things in ways that are different, saying no to certain things that you hadn't said no to before, um, recovering alcoholics or something, and um, sort of saying no to those things and saying yes to uh, much more complicated stories. Uh, I, I think all of that just sort of it, it builds its own virtuous cycle. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing just to piggyback maybe off the prior discussion that you were um, laying out for us in terms of how you got the financial backing to do this, um, you know, that I think is a really, that ultimately is what it comes down to. You have to, like, as much as, I mean, you can, the chicken and the egg problem, right? That's something that you can basically, like, you can find the right person. All you need is one or two, and you can eventually establish um, a a bit of a reputation for doing good work in that field. But if you don't have the money to allocate to these, to create these positions, then you're just going to be, you're not even going to get a start on that. And so one thing I'm curious about, when you look at kind of the when you look past HCN, when you look to the, um, you know, whether it's other regional publications or national publications who you know, let's first focus on the people who actually have the funding to be able to do this. Your New York Times, um, you know, your Washington Post, places like that. Like we see in Canada, they have entire indigenous desks in their news stations, in their newspapers. They have a much better, it's still a ways to go, but, uh, you know, it's a much better setup comparative to the United States. And, I mean, I guess the, the basic question is why haven't they done that yet, especially after Standing Rock when it was so, it was such a glaring hole in their coverage that you saw that nobody really understood from a national perspective how to do this. And so, I mean, why is it not happening? Why isn't it, why isn't it happening? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Trigger warning for white people. <clears throat> the, our country was founded on principles of white supremacy. Yeah. Okay. That runs deeply within many, many of our institutions and our, uh, our history. And if you cannot wrap your head around that, then you cannot see the problem. <laughs> and what that has meant for indigenous communities, whether they're federally recognized or not, because there are also tribes that are not federally recognized, which is another whole other uh, kettle of fish. So the, the problem is that <clears throat> in the United States, Native Americans are rendered invisible. They're invisible to the um, editors of the New York Times. Um, They're invisible to the people who live next to reservations. Um, 
they're invisible in the data. So it's really a huge problem that I think when we look back um, on what Standing Rock accomplished was it for a moment pierced the veil of invisibility and, and made these communities visible in, in a way that some folks paid attention. And that includes funders. So we were able to build our desk from, with support from the Ford Foundation, who was um, I interested in, in funding something like that, but, but no one had come along and asked for it in a really specific way, in a way that was committed to doing it the right way, rather than just sort of you know, fleecing the funder for a couple hundred thou or whatever for to, you know, token coverage in Native America. So we didn't do that. And so that support has built into other support. And I think we're also kind of, kind of riding on this other interesting phenomenon, which is that sort of um, there's a lot of interest in Native America from readers, but it's really misguided. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so sort of <clears throat> there's a stereotype called the ecological Indian. And if you're this idea that every Native American has this spiritual connection to the land, that's something that I think our readers might have, some of them. Okay. Like a majority. No, I don't know. So plenty of them ha kind of have this idea. And so in their own way, they're, they're curious, you know, and they're very accepting of stories that breach that. Because our, our readers want to be informed, but they just have no idea how misinformed they are on that side of things. And so um, we're kind of, because we cover this region that was built out of Manifest Destiny, another form, you know, form of white supremacy, and then all these federal public lands were built out of that um, at great cost to millions and millions of people. They're, they're interested. So there's a, there's a kind of, there's a readership there that helps, but there's also a, a, that again, this, this virtuous cycle. So that allows us to commit. And because we're a nonprofit, we, do, we get support from uh, lots of individuals for what we do. We get su support from foundations. And they're just very supportive of what we do. So it's like, um, I won't make that metaphor. It's, so we're doing OK. I'm excited. Uh, you can tell me the metaphor after the panel. Um, <clears throat> Can I just add something really quick? Yeah, to yeah, the, please um, do. Earlier when you were talking about uh, the importance of representation on staff, not just for race, but also for like class and stuff like mm -hmm. that, I also think that um, across the gender spectrum is really important too. Yes. Um, and I think that's something that HCN has, even within like the last year or two, um, also focused on more so. Yeah, so. and you can notice that, especially in some of the more recent issues that have come out over the past year. I'm a digital subscriber, and I think everybody should be, <laughs> not to pump it, but I think that, um, you know, it, it's something that you've seen. Um, what, what was the, there was, what was the, the rock band issue that came oh, out? Oh, Nijoni Girls? Yeah, I loved that um, yeah. story. And I think that you guys do a good job of being creative in your coverage, whether it's like the futuristic, um, the one that was like, was it 2040 or what? 2060. Yeah. yeah. So that one I thought was really creative um, and, you know, doing the graphic uh, novel kind of um, approach so it was very controversial yeah <laughs> we got a lot of letters to the editor from that one that people were very unhappy about it so it's kind of like you know it's yeah. got to center yourself I guess because <laughs> it's always the loudest voices that come through so yeah absolutely um well I just want to I want to ask one more question um to kind of go off of the the funding thing because when I'm focusing on um 
outlets with the funds to be able to do that. I think that, you know, that's obviously good and they should course correct immediately and, and put the money that they have um, towards it. But a lot of outlets don't have that kind of funding and they don't have that kind of um, the, the financial stability to say, well, we're just going to create a new desk. And so that ultimately what you're looking at is a problem, a, 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 an issue that it can be addressed either by replacing people who are already on staff, which is a very tough decision to make, um, or just trying, like in your next round of hiring, solely looking for people that kind of, um, you know, native and indigenous people who kind of can fit that um, coverage model for you. And so I just wanted to pose the question to you, Brian, of when we're talking about maybe more cash-strapped operations, What's the way forward as you see it, um, and whether it's nonprofit or for-profit? I know that's a big distinction, but how? how what's like? What's the pitch? How do you pitch this to the people um, that don't have maybe you know aren't the New York Times? Yeah, I think it's a. I think it would be a tough call for any editor, and you you know kind of depending on the if it's um, regional, national, or local, there are some decisions to make. You know, you would you would think that the LA Times might sort of be thinking about this in some way um, because it's um, it's a competitive advantage because there are so many potential readers. And it kind of goes back to the panel that we had just before this one, which is that there are lots and lots of readers out there who are not seeing themselves in the coverage of a, a national publication. Uh, I, I think by watching LA Times, I think they're doing some of that, but I don't think they've got to the indigenous um, readership yet in some yeah. ways. And so, I mean, the you can republish anything that High Country News does for free. <laughs> so there's a start. But um, I think it, it, it really comes down to uh, newsroom leaders making strategic priorities and understanding that um, there's a lot of interest in this kind of material and nuanced we got three-dimensional reporting from Indian country. It's just really, it's it's a it's a part of the American story that's just like so not told that like everything you do, it's really fresh. Yeah. So I mean, like I learned so much from the coverage of our tribal affairs or indigenous affairs desk. Um, I, like I have to assume that like my readers are doing the same, right. and I think newsroom leaders have to make a prioritization on on where to put their resources and and. Um, you know, it, it, it's it most back, of the money. Yeah, I was just going to say, does it get back to the chicken and the egg problem? Because when you're talking about newsroom leaders, how many natives are in are in those right. executive editor positions right. or, or in the financier positions? Right. You know, it's something where you need people in that. You need the Brian Pollard. You need Tristan, um, like in that room. But if they're not in that room, it seems like a large expectation to just have them you know, wake up one day and be like, oh, we should do this. Because yeah. for, I don't know, 200 some years, they haven't done it yet. And we, like Standing Rock, if it wasn't the wake up call for all of these organizations to do that, it feels like what, what can accomplish that? Um, and I don't know if that's a question so much as like a cynical worldview, but <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of like my assessment of like the media uh, how the media functions when that's probably looking more at a national scale but like mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's tough to like start that conversation if there's nobody there to start the conversation and um 
Yeah, I mean, but even then, it's like Brian wasn't, there weren't 20 Brians, there was one Brian, right? Right, but yeah, <laughs> the, the thing about that is, though, that there is a Native American Journalists Association, and right. there are lots of journalist associations that are dedicated to different communities that are underrepresented in newsrooms, and anyone could pick up the phone and call them, and you would have Brian Pollard on the phone, or you'll have Tristan Atone on the phone, and if you say, how do I do this with what I've got, here's what I have, you know, yeah. There's a, there's a start. There's just so like kind of sitting around hoping that national newsroom leaders are going to sort of wake up to this isn't it's just not realistic. But I think that what'll is going to happen in this is sort of to the larger point is that you know journalism is this public good that people are coming around to again to sort of realizing oh wow if we don't have that it's kind of shitty around here and um so that's kind of getting funded and so in some ways when we're moving towards a uh, majority minority country it's just going to the the journalism's going to reflect more and more the actual community rather than the um dominant um culture so i think that's sort of where the the hope is it's just bit by bit but the, there's sort of um being more visible, these kinds of um, you know conferences that are becoming more and more inclusive, and ideas that are you know th those are it's all kind of a, a teeny tiny trend in journalism, and I think yeah. it's trending the right way, but it's going to take some time. So that's less cynical, but yeah. can I add something there too? Please do. Um, I mean, the Native American Journalists Association was just like a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was a month ago, but. Um, that's always really inspiring because they have a really good mentorship program for mm -hmm. young indigenous journalists. Yeah. And I think that there's more access to mentorship now and more access to education. Um, and so I think that those external forces are also going to have an impact on how many indigenous journalists are entering the workforce and eventually making it up to those leadership positions. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was just talking to somebody about that after the last panel. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, so we've got about 10 minutes left, uh, just cause lunch, uh, cut into it a little bit, but I want to open that up to questions. Uh, okay. We've got two. Okay. Right here in the gray shirt. Okay. So I have to repeat it. So the question was, um, for, for outlets that are bringing on maybe just one, uh, indigenous reporter, one indigenous editor, how do you, um, create the resources and support them in a way that they don't feel, um, kind of drowned out, um, and, and not represented, uh, or have a powerful voice? This is gonna be the same answer that it's been for many, many years, and it's like easy to say and it's hard to do. You have to create an environment that is welcoming to different ideas and perspectives. And what I think a lot of newsrooms get wrong um, with diversity, which is a terrible word for I think what people are trying to accomplish, um, it just shows how bad the framing is, is how do we get someone that looks different from me but thinks like me in here? And it doesn't, this isn't, that's not what it's about. It's really about understanding that there are many, many different sort of uh, perspectives from people from all kinds of different communities. And you have to be able to build an environment where um, people can have constructive dialogue. They can disagree with each other without being um, passive aggressive, without being aggressive, without being microaggressive. There's all kinds of things you have to do to build an environment before you even kind of make that next step because otherwise you're going to have a bounce rate <laughs> that's super high. People are going to come in, they're going to hate it. Um, and so at, at High Country News, I mean, we're still very much working on that on that culture. And I, I, I regret not doing more groundwork 
before um, bringing in a lot of uh, different perspectives, writers and editors of color. Um, it's a tough environment. Uh, it can be. Um, so it's kind of, it's a little bit flaky, but it's sort of, it's sort of like, you know, are your people prepared to do nonviolent communication? Are people prepared to um, understand their different fault lines or privileges? Or like, uh, is your whole newsroom ready for that? Is your IT guy going to be making mocking, you know, f jokes about different <laughs> groups? Or like, you know, I mean, it's like you got to like check people on all their stuff all the time, and so that you create this environment. So it's not it's not easy, but that's a really important like foundation to lay. Otherwise, you're you're kind of it's like heartbreak for everyone, I think. Yeah, so one thing that High Country News um, has been doing is like newsroom trainings. Um, so that's one way that we've kind of had like the, the conversation ongoing. Um, I think that also, like for myself, being the non-native on the indigenous affairs desk, I, like there have been times in the past where we were like at a conference and somebody made some kind of weird joke that was kind of on the side. It was somebody else who was at the conference. And it wasn't so much that the uh, indigenous people on the desk were going to say anything about it, but it like clearly made them uncomfortable. And so I thought about the times that like a guy has said something that's like kind of sexist, but not so sexist that I like want to make a big stink about it and like impact myself professionally, but just like let it slide. So I like I contacted the conference people and were just like this. These are the people who are coming to your conference and it's making people feel uncomfortable. And so like and I, obviously I checked with the indigenous staffers first to make sure it was okay that I do that. But um, I guess to sum it up in a word, it's like having staffers who are allies and who are willing to. Um, take some of that emotional burden or at least have that conversation and making sure that people feel comfortable um, and when they're not feeling comfortable like do something about it yeah thank you for that um, and I'll just um, I'm gonna piggyback real quick off of that just because <clears throat> I want to provide an answer as somebody who is the only indigenous person in my newsroom um, <clears throat> you know I've had I've been there two months, and I probably had like three incidents. Like one time in an elevator going down, the coworker was like asking me what tribe I was, and uh, was you know made the remark that I think every native person has probably heard in their life, which is that, oh well, my grandma is uh, you know a half or a quarter, blah blah blah. And um, in in that situation, it's a really uncomfortable thing. I'm not good at personal confrontation. I'm bad at that. Um, but I like. I think people also, it's important to like, as that person, you have to establish yourself and who you are very quickly. Um, and that is not a fair responsibility. It's not a fair answer, but it's the reality. And that's gonna be the truth for every, it, if you're a woman, if you're an indigenous person, any marginalized community that is breaking through and entering a newsroom, that is going to happen, and it doesn't matter if they are they go the extra mile and they do all the uh, beforehand groundwork, or if they just hire you and just expect um, don't know what to expect. Like that is going to happen, and it's important that um, you know as you know people from these communities that we acknowledge that and that we make sure and prepare our you know our brothers and sisters entering these fields for it, and you know we. At the same time, we have to hold people's feet to the fire and say, you should do better. 
but it's important to recognize that this happens, and if you're not prepared to deal with it, it's very easy to get steamrolled. Um, and so, yes, here. Okay, I have a question. The question is, um, so I work in video and documentary, and there are just times when, yeah, similar to what the, uh, in the earlier panel, what the AP person was talking about, parachuting in, we don't have a lot of times where a crew, it's expensive to get up there. Um, a lot of these panels have talked, about, of course, about establishing trust and access within the community. Do you guys have any experience or tips or ideas in terms of working with like a fixer within the community, which is an idea you use a lot in documentary, especially if you're working in another country where you need someone to be your guide, help with language, help with facilitating, and do that sort of reporting groundwork to build the trust and the access for the contacts. Um, it's a model that our industry definitely uses yeah, for international reporting. Yeah. I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts about it. I've never used a fixer, so I'm not sure how to answer that. Uh, sure, yeah. So the first half of my career was spent as a foreign correspondent, and I lived in all kinds of different places, and I came to see my role as highly exploitive and unnecessary, so this is not maybe the answer you're looking for. <laughs> um, the, the fact is that there are lots of talented, smart people from within those communities that can do a lot more work than fixing, and so that model is not a great model. I would encourage you to think of other models, um, and I don't really have an answer for that, um, but I think that there really isn't, um, there's no way for me to just go out on the street and ask someone to marry me and get a positive response. And, and that's like trust, right? You just can't do it. And so if you're not gonna like spend the time doing it, maybe you should spend your time doing something else and then giving the space for someone else to just kind of come up into that space from that community. It's not a great answer and I'm not really, really flip about it, but I have went through like 15 years of this thought process and, and was just like, wow, this is really shitty. Like, I'm coming in here, I'm framing it in a way that I think like the editors want, and I'm like, you know, squeezing every possible thing I can out of this person who spent their entire life here working for nothing, their families are in danger, they're getting threats, and I'm just gonna like sort of, you know, use that person, hope that they kind of give me what I need, and then I'm gonna go back, and, and hopefully my career will rise as a result. Um, and I just don't think it's a great model. So, but one thing yeah. that, um, it's kind of, I mean, it would be changing the model, and it would be more about partnership and not the fixer model. And partnering is something that High Country News has done a lot. Um, and it still involves that knowledge, but it basically gives credit to that knowledge um, in, in a way that the public can understand and see. Um, so again, that doesn't quite answer the question, but it is, it's, I think it's maybe more productive. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Thank you so much for that, Anna. Um, we have time for one more question. Okay, Alistair? Yeah, so thank you. I'm glad. I really like the coverage of High Country News. Um, I like the writing style and everything. Um, and I'm glad that they have indigenous or tribal affairs. But I'm wondering how I can pitch stories because I feel like I. I send out information, but you guys don't fight. And so like, I'm wondering how you guys can fight, or how, what's the process to get you guys to cover very serious topics, or even right. in San Juan County, uh -huh. or in and around you communities, public communities, and now the net communities. Yes. So kind of one of the really interesting things about having um, 
uh, desk editor, which is Tristan, is yeah, you know, believe it or not, he's just an individual with lots of different sort of ideas on what his the coverage of his desk should be that aren't necessarily everybody else's ideas, including maybe mine. So, giving him the sort of green light uh, ability to sort of say like, you know what, actually that story isn't really new in Indian country. That's been missing and murdered women has been talked about for a really long time, so it has to be a really sh sharp sort of moving that story forward, which is what you want out of an editor, right? I could never do that because it's, I'm just like s sitting around shocked by, or you know, whatever. So um, I, I think it's just really a matter of like with any, any publication that's really sophisticated is you really have to figure out what that editor is looking for and at the right time and on budget. Yeah, I mean, it's like really hard to like land stories as a freelancer writ large, right? So it's sort of, it's nothing about, it could be the best idea in the world, but like, we just don't have the money to do it right then, or we just think it's sort of um, something about that's been done too often, or, you know, so you just have to kind of do what all freelancers do, which is just kind of keep, keep reading and kind of getting a sense of what that editor wants. And, um, hopefully getting landing a pitch where you're sort of opening a dialogue and a conversation with that editor so that even if it's not that's not the right idea there's another another one that might might be and that's sort of the best i can say yeah so one just to add to that i wish justin were here but he's in peru right now so can't argue with that but um we more and more over the last few years that i've been at high country news we're moving away from news and instead doing either deeper dives or kind of looking at um, like thought leader type ideas, lines of inquiry, stuff like that. So um, those usually involve like character driven um, types of stories. So I don't know what, what the pitch was that you're talking about specifically, but that's the kind of stuff that we're broadly looking for. Um, and then what was the other thing I was going to say? I think that was the main thing. Just that we're not so we're not so newsy as we've even been in the last year, and so we're really doing like slow burn kind of articles, um, and always looking for those yeah new fresh ideas that are character driven. Great. Um, well, let's get a round of applause for our excellent panelists. Um, and thank you guys again for taking the time uh, during your lunch to, to listen to us uh, talk about all this. And now we will eat our lunch and move on to the next panel. <laughs>